0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. We'll be in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 tonight. Matthew chapters 1 and 2. Now, we've been in a season of a lot of ice and snow, so I think most of us understand what I mean when I say that when the road is icy, you drive... fast. <laughs> I have those kids in my stu- in my class right now. <laughs> Yeah, when the roads are icy, we drive slowly. We drive cautiously. When the, ro- when the walkways are icy, we walk cautiously. carefully. Um, we need to remind ourselves that in the spiritual life, in a, the Christian life, we live in a caution, icy zone. We are always walking, not on thin ice, but on slippery surfaces, And what that means for us is that we need the mindset to walk our Christian walk with the awareness that we could slip at any moment, that every step has the potential to lead us out of what God is doing in us and for us. I was reminded of this when my daughter was, I was walking my daughter to school here at LACS. And some of you know this, that we live just up the kind of the ridge here. And so it's like a seven-minute walk in ice, maybe twelve-minute walk um, down to the school. And I'm walking her, and the way this trail goes is it's fairly easy going. But um, Rosie's not here tonight. Cause she could vouch for me how wretched this trail can be. Um, <coughs> but there's one part where it's just like narrowly cut into a very steep hill, and so it's like about as wide as two feet will go. And when snow comes on it, of course, the snow falls on it not level; it slopes it even more. And then, um, as we've been walking it, uh, as the days are melty and the ice, the nights are icy, these little this little slope part of the trail has become very slippery. And so, it's not easy. To, it could be one bad step, and you could be sliding down this hill all the way to the road below. Um, and so, obviously, um, I was walking very carefully with Evelyn holding her hand at parts, making sure we tested spots out before I took her down with me or whatever. Uh, but it was a reminder to her and I that a walk that we usually take with, she can run down it, you know, usually. But we had to take every step cautiously and carefully. And we have to remember the same thing. We fail to be watchful when we forget that there's danger lurking around us. You've never seen a soldier, an an army outfit, out in the enemy territory. Everyone's sleeping unwatchful. You never see that. They're aware that there's danger around them. And so someone is on watch around the clock. We need to understand that we live in dangerous times and we're not in heaven. So the devil's still real. The demons are still working. And we must, at the same, in the same way, we must be watchful and we must be careful. When we forget that, bad things happen. And here's what I want, uh, I want, an example of that. But let's actually, um, yeah, let's do this and then we'll read Matthew 1. Um, to show you the danger that we can be living in. Um, we live abiding in Christ. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who abides in Christ. And Jesus told us to abide in him continually. Abiding is something we must continually do and continually receive. So on one hand, there is us who um, give energy to Christ through worship, adoration, prayer, intercession, confession. There is a multitude of ways. Being here at church, hopefully you are pouring yourself to him. You've lifted up your voices in song. You've lifted up your thanksgiving and praise in word or in heart. You've confessed your sins. We are orienting ourselves to Christ and we're lifting ourselves up to him. And as we do that, we find more of us. We are in Christ. See that at the same time as our energy is poured into Christ, his energy is poured into us. This, when this happens, it's called synergy. It's called grace being poured into us. It's us giving ourselves to him, and then he comes and gives himself to us, and now Christ is in us. And this is what the Bible and the New Testament describes, is we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, so that there's this mutual indwelling, this mutual filling. I'm giving him myself, he's giving himself to me. This continual flow, see it as a flow, it continually... Keeps going. It, it doesn't stop. This is how we have eternal life because we're not just living in a static life that's got a time ticker on it and it's going to run out. We're continually receiving his eternal life into us as we give ourselves to him in worship and communion. Okay? The enemy hates this. This is everything that he's aimed to destroy in the human race. And Christ is making us once again in his image. So what he does is there's two ways he likes to break this flow. One is called sin. One one way we break this flow is in sin. Sin is not bad because it sends you to hell. Christ has covered that for you as a Christian. Sin is bad because it stops this abiding flow. The life and the flow of God in us. We hinder it because what we've done is now, rather than pouring our energy into Christ, we're pouring our energy into something else. It can be yourself. It can be a person, an idol, a lust, a greed, pride, self-esteem. There's all kinds of things we can pour ourselves into. Sin is one of the ways we stop this abiding process. But tonight we see another way in the lives of both Joseph and Herod. One a good example, one a bad example of another way that this abiding process comes to an end or temporarily halted. Uh, The demons also like to use, um, they like to use our thoughts. Our thoughts are another way that this stops. How does this work? You, You panic, because it seems like the tasks you've been given to do in life are not working. So you realize you need to try harder. And so you start pouring more of yourself into it and you're seeing no difference in the results. So now you're getting stressed and now you're beginning to pour more of yourself into it. And what's going to end up happening is as you continue to see no results from you pouring more of yourself into something, you're going to grow, you're going to fall into one of the great Seven, eight deadly sins, despair, despondency. Because you're gonna say, I've done everything and it won't work. And then the demons come in with these thoughts. First their first thought was, Why don't you put more energy more of your work into this? You do it. Don't trust God in this. You do it. First fault was you decided I'm gonna make this work. And then as you continue to do it and it fails, they throw in the second thought. Ah, see, you're worthless. You can't do it. It's a total wreck. And now you're in despondency and despair. And why are you there? Because all of this was actually pride. You're there because you thought you could fix something. You found out that you can't fix it. Now you hate who you are because you think you're not good enough. Mm -hmm. The demons have completely wrecked you in a threefold way. Just through thoughts. Thoughts that you said, yes, that's what I'll do about this problem. That's my solution to this. We must be watchful. Because thoughts are the most subtle. If the devil comes up to you, wearing red tights and a pitch, carrying a pitchfork and and puffing smoke in your face, I am pretty sure every single one of you will know what to do in that scenario. Get behind me, Satan, or run, <laughs> whichever your your ta- tactic is. You will know what to do. I'm not listening to a word you say. La, 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 la. However, the devil never comes to us like that. He always comes to us in the form of thoughts. Thoughts are generally what do lead us to sin. These are the same thing, but we tend to focus on sin forgetting, never really stopping to ask, how did we get there? Our thoughts are the battleground of the spiritual warfare. We therefore must, we must therefore walk like it's icy. We must watch, not just our footsteps, we must watch our thoughts. What are we letting in? And when it comes in, what do we do with it? What do we do with these thoughts? So if the devil can get us to stop abiding in Christ because of a thought, he's wrecked us. And and we haven't even realized that we're in sin until it's major sin. That's when we usually realize it. So here's what we do. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1 and 2. We're going to look at Joseph. We're going to look at Herod. And we're going to look at the thought life of both of them. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Now, we've covered this, um, but we're going to get the context again from Joseph's point of view. 118, now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, which means they're under legal contract to get married in about a year. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So before they consummated this marriage, while they're still in the betrothal period, Mary's pregnant. Very clearly says they did not come together. So this is not Joseph's fault. You know, Joseph, Joseph is introduced right. He sees Mary someday, and like what four? What when did he starts showing three months, maybe four months? Ignorant yeah. manhood. Yeah, okay, Ish. yeah, somewhere around there. Um, yeah, so, so a few months down the road, he's like, oh. And immediately he's hit with a thought, isn't he? What kind of a thought do you have at that moment? It varies on our personalities, but each of us are immediately struck with an impulse, with a thought. We have a judgment. We have a conclusion. We start solving this problem right away. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man in verse 19 and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Note that word quietly because it's going to show up again in the next chapter. And what does that mean? Resolve to divorce her quietly. Joseph's first thought was what everybody's first, at least in this culture, in this time, everybody's first thought would have been, oh, divorce. That's what we're supposed to do in this situation. The law tells us to divorce someone in this situation. The the oral tradition of the, of the rabbis tell us to do this in this situation. So Joseph, his here's the thought. Okay. Yep. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to divorce her. And he's going to do so quietly. So now that means he's going to have to make a plan. Here's a problem. She's pregnant. I'm going to have to work around this. That's, that's his, so he's coming up with this plan to do it quietly, right? To do it boisterously is easy, right? You're divorced. Let's go to the town right now. And then this whole showdown happens. But no, instead right now, what he's going to do is he's going to kind of, he's going to try to do this his way in obedience, but in a, in a unique, his way kind of way. So he's trying to connive now, right? He's, he's in thought mode. He's thinking through all this. And while he does this, in verse 20, "...but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." For he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means, Emmanuel means God with us. So when Joseph woke from sleep, he changed his whole direction, his whole course, his whole plot and plan is different now. When he woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she'd given birth to his son and called his name Jesus. So Joseph is hit with a thought and he's he's intending to act upon what he thinks he should do in this situation. But in the meantime, he chooses to continue to mold this over. It said in verse, 19, 20, verse 20, as he considered these things. And the, that word consider refers to bringing something to mind. So he didn't just throw this out and say, okay, whatever, I've already made up my mind on it. He keeps playing this thing over and over. He keeps bringing it to the surface of his mind. He's not just going with his gut decision. He's going to ponder it a little bit. What he's doing is Joseph is practicing watchfulness. He's watching over his thoughts about Mary. He's continually putting a guard over it and saying, is this really the right thing I should do? Is this what I should do? He's not doing what people who are not watchful do. He's not saying, I know what to do. I'm going to do it. I wake up and... He's, he's, He's not acting in rashness. He's not assuming his first thought was right. He's being watchful. And during the night, a new thought comes to him. Through God Himself, through His angel. Watchfulness is one, is first of all, helps us identify where the devil's trying to throw the wrong ideas into our mind, but then it also opens us up to what God wants to actually say in the situation. Because as corrupted humans, we tend to side with the wrong decision as a natural impulse. Watchfulness can help correct that. Joseph changes his course. He's troubled, but he gives the trouble to God. He takes it out of his hands. Herod, on the other hand, chapter 2, verse 1. He also is going to have news, and it's going to instigate a thought in his mind. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So Herod is, um, he's the king over Judea, the southern part of Israel. Um, later, this whole political configuration will change. But at the moment, he actually has full rule over this little region. He was given this rule by Caesar because he was given an outfit by Caesar to go conquer uh, Judea uh, from the Hasmonean dynasty, uh, which was a Jew- a little t- tiny Jewish dynasty that they had for little moments right before Jesus is born. Herod conquers all that, and he takes over the land. And so Herod kills everyone to take the city, and so murder is the way he gets things we're going to see how this man thinks. So he's king. He's the king, and behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, these wise men or these magi, uh, we will talk about them on their own terms, I think next week. I can't remember. It's one of the upcoming weeks. We'll actually address them and the star soon. So we're not going to touch on them tonight, but you know them basically enough they come from an out, they're Gentiles. They come from another country. They come in likely a full entourage, more than three people. You never traveled in small groups back then, those distances. And so this, this great entourage shows up and Herod's like, whoa, foreigners, this, I, this is news, right? This is the news of the year. Remember that day when all those magi came from the East? That was crazy. So they show up and they're saying, we're still in, uh, we're in verse two now, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So a massive group of people come looking for a king. And Herod's like, wait a minute, I'm the king. So now he's troubled, right? There's a usurper in my midst. So they say, for we have seen his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. We not only know there's a king, we're going to give him, this king, our homage. Sorry, Herod, you're kind of a has-been at this point. What do you mean? Because there's a star, and the star told us that there's another king, and so you're a has-been. And actually, ancient people believed this. Well, again, look at this again You know, down the road. But ancient people actually believed that stars would tell you what's happening in the dynasties of the nations. And so when Herod hears that a star is backing up their belief, he's really worried. So uh, we, we're come to worship him, give him our allegiance. Now in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, So Joseph saw Mary pregnant. Oh, I should divorce her. Herod hears there's another king. What's his thought? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. So like Joseph, he's troubled. But this guy is going to be very coy. So in verse 4, he pretends to be along with the ride. He assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people And he inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. This is Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, and he will shepherd my people Israel. So now that they know, Bethlehem, great. Okay, troubling news, target, Herod continues to conspire. So in verse seven, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. What is Herod up to? We know in a little bit in the story, he's interested in his king, not to worship him, but to kill him, to squash the threat to his throne. And if he gained the throne through war and violence, how's he going to keep it? War and violence. This is what he knows. This is the game of earthly kings. Now, it says in verse seven, he summoned the wise men secretly. That word, secretly, is the very same word Um, that was used for Joseph when it said he resolved to divorce her quietly. It's the same Greek word. Both refer to planning, plotting, and trying to do something sort of on the down low so that you can get your plan out in the open before anyone knows about it, okay? They're both scheming. They're both plotting. They're both planning. Some troubling thought comes to them. They feel the trouble, and now immediately what they go into is, I can figure this out mode. I'm going to do this both of them do that the only difference is that joseph starts watching his thoughts and his plans and he is open to correction from god herod however has no watchfulness he's all impulsive and we see this carried out to the maximum so in verse 12 the wise men have worshipped christ and in verse 12 being warned in a dream not to return to herod They departed to their own country by another way. (laughs) Now, when they had departed, in verse 13, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph is able to hear this, receive this and obey. And he goes. Then Herod, in verse 16, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled the prophet Jeremiah. So Herod goes to the max on his plan. He has a troubling thought. And he then, like Joseph, tries to make a plan. But unlike Joseph, he doesn't watch his thoughts. He just goes with it. And it leads to this massacre and this murder. Now, Herod, in chapter 2, verse 3, we see something that's a little bit different than Joseph. We aren't told that Joseph is... We The word troubled isn't really used in the Joseph story. He just sees something like, hey, I know what to do. But then he's watchful and... God changes his mind, right? Um, but in two verse three, we see this about Herod. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He was troubled. Now that word troubled can be widely translated because it's actually more violent than just troubled. Um, Taylor, Taylor Swift and other artists have made the word trouble kind of a little soft in our culture. So, um, He's not just like, I knew you were troubled when you walked in, to the wise men. He's troubled on a full, sorry, he's <laughs> so troubled on a full, deeper level. Uh, the word actually refers to inward commotion. Inside, there is some, there's like a hurricane just swept through him. This is troubled. Like, you've got this sort of status quo in life, and now you're knocked over in a moment. Mm. Uh, another way to translate it, it's, it's disquiet, or it's no calmness of mind. So the mind was at peace, calm, humming along in your dynasty, and then all of a sudden it can't stop worrying about and worrying, worrying and worrying about this issue, this child in some place in my kingdom. So this is eating at him. Troubled can also be translated to refer to uh, anxious or distressed. So when it says that Herod was troubled, he has a world of reaction inside of him. And I can relate to what he's feeling. You may not see your betrothed pregnant. You may not see some usurper taking down your kingdom. I don't think either of us are in that context. But we do, in different ways, see curveballs and things that we didn't expect, things that are suddenly not what we hoped things would be. And we become troubled. The calmness of mind is gone. We're inwardly moved. We're distressed. We're anxious. There's a storm inside of us. And it's those feelings of trouble that is what the devil is after. To get us to stop the flow with Christ, to stop trusting and resting in him, and instead to start quietly finding a way to divorce or secretly finding a way to murder the child. Right? This is where we are invited to be watchful over our thoughts. So I want to talk about how to be watchful because there's four layers to this. doesn't mean you have to do all of them in order, but there's if you want to be like a, a four-dimensional watchful Christian, there's four layers to watchfulness. How are we watchful? The first way to be watchful is to scrutinize your thoughts. Learn to scrutinize those thoughts when they come. All thoughts. So something happens and you found something registering in your mind. Scrutinize that. Don't just go with it. We, we we have become so trained to habitually just go with our thoughts that we even don't... The concept of scrutinizing them, stop, whoa, pause, is foreign to us. You remember how... um uh, I don't remember what week this was. It was a couple weeks ago, though, uh, when we looked at Joseph and the Grinch. And uh, Joseph, we looked at there, one of the things we said is that we must learn to pause our impulses. Thoughts generally give us our first impulse. We must learn to pause that impulse. We must learn to scrutinize that thought first. And one of the ways to do this is when something comes before us, be curious about what kind of thoughts, what kind of plans are popping into my mind. And start naming them. Examine them and name them. Naming your thoughts is incredibly helpful in the Christian life. Because I, when I do this, I sometimes will suddenly discover, whoa, wait a minute. I have been reacting in an anxious way for the last three months to this situation. And I finally was able to name it. And now I know this is, obviously, anxiety is the wrong path here. If I'm anxious, I'm not trusting in Christ. Naming it is a powerful step because now I recognize I need to change my direction. So we first scrutinize our thoughts That's the first layer. And part of that is get used to naming them and pause your impulses. Don't assume the first thought is the right thought. Name it. Where is it coming from? Who is throwing this in my mind? Second, stillness. Still your heart. Bring stillness to your heart. A still heart is an unmoved heart. It's an untroubled heart. Um, remember Paul, when he's talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he's on his way to Jerusalem and he knows, he just knows something bad's going to happen there. And he tells the Ephesian elders, look, I know chains and suffering await me, but none of these things move me. I'm not moved by them because he is found In Christ, a stillness of heart that no news in the world could trouble him out of that. That's the peace of Christ which overcomes all anxiousness. Stillness frees us from these kinds of demonic thoughts because you're rested in Christ and nothing can pull you out of that. Um, Stillness is something that we gain in prayer. This isn't, um, you know, we're not talking about like just sitting down and staring at your belly button kind of stillness. We're talking about turning the heart toward Christ in a restful way. And in this prayer, you're not letting thoughts trouble you. Because we can do this, actually. In prayer, we can actually let thoughts come in, and then we start praying in accordance to those thoughts. And before you know it, you realize that you've been praying anxious prayers for the last 10 minutes. Or you have been praying or at least thinking upon how much you don't like a person, but on the side, like, Lord, help me. But I really don't like them. You start pondering all the things you want to happen. But, oh, Lord, help me. Uh, like, that's good. At least you're asking the Lord to help you. But that's not stillness in prayer. Stillness in prayer is freed from things being able to pull you out of abiding in Christ. Stillness in prayer brings that calm. And what happens when we can be still in prayer is you can actually begin to see the thoughts that c- try to come in. And you begin to identify them and scrutinize them, and you're like, whoa, I had no idea that I put this much energy and priority into this thought here. Like I'm an obsessive planner. So every time I'm in prayer, things I need to plan through the day start popping up. This is not time to pray, Brandon. This is time to plan your day. Mm-hmm. Whoa, wait. That's not from the Lord right there. We, it's stillness in prayer is the concept that my abiding in Christ, pouring myself to him and him pouring himself into me, that this abiding is the most important thing I can do right now. Nothing else trumps what's happening right now. That's when prayer is, your heart enters into stillness and in prayer. Nothing can move it then. Oh my goodness. Today's the deadline for this. And you instantly want to start planning it while you're praying. Right? You want to start planning, how, when am I going to fit this into my day? That has to go because there's nothing more important than abiding with Christ right now. That's what stillness looks like, unmoved by thoughts. So we, we got to scrutinize our thoughts and name them. We got to, we got to find stillness in prayer. Third, um, one of the ways to do this is to concentrate our heart on a single thought. It is not possible to be thoughtless. There's a lot of like Eastern meditation stuff out there in our culture today, right? Um, Christianity has elements of this, but there are significant differences too. And one is that we believe the thoughts, our ability to think is good, but our ability to think is meant to be fully focused and energized by Christ. So prayer should be a single thought, the thought of Christ himself. Now, there are traditions about how to help yourself do this. Um, we've talked before about how to do this, um, We've talked about arrow prayers. They're those one-liner prayers that you can go to and continually draw on because that prayer becomes your single thought. So if you find yourself particularly troubled, start going over this prayer over and over and over a single thought. Um, you guys remember Macarius and the desert, monks and nuns in egypt back in the third and fourth century um we know from a written report that one of the prayers they said over and over out there was oh god make speed to save me oh lord make haste to help me they were found repeating this prayer to train their heart to continually repeat a single thought that this is my thought so when you see mary pregnant oh god make speed to save me not well let's figure out how to get rid of this problem Or when you're Herod and someone's threatening your domain, it's not, well, how can I get rid of this person or make this into what I want it to be? It's, oh, God, make speed to save me. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. The single thought of the heart We train this by praying with single thoughts and then we try to carry single thoughts through our day. So, you know what it is like when you see someone at Seder Brothers? Like, I knew they're always here on Tuesday afternoon. Why did I come on Tuesday afternoon? You know, those, you, you might have those people where you just feel your body get tense when you see them. Well, there are thoughts happening when that happens. But what if instead a watchful person watching their thoughts would see that person, they would feel the tension in their body, but rather than thinking, ah, oh, I hate them, I, hate, I don't like talking to them because I don't have time for them, or they're always boring me, stories about their cats, or whatever it is. Like um, When that happens, what if that single thought, that singleness of heart comes up, and it's, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And then, oh, this is a human being. Let me bless them today. This this is how a Christian is watchful over their thoughts. So then the fourth and final way, layer, uh, is death. Not that you die. Obviously, your thoughts are pretty flatlined when you die. But um, it's, the, it's the keeping death on your mind. Keeping your death on your mind. Now consider this. We're worried about X, Y, and Z. We carry that. But what if, in, um, what if we then remembered continually, I'm going to die. I'm literally going to die. And it's going to be very soon, sooner than I think. Does X, Y, and Z bother you as much as it did before you remembered that? It shouldn't. Because if I remember that I'm going to die, the problems I'm facing and I'm spending all my energy on actually mean nothing once I'm dead. They mean absolutely nothing. And I'll look back and say, that was, Oh God and I will look back and say, that was what I was worried about, Lord. I missed all of this because I was too focused on quietly putting this away or secretly discerning when the child was born because I'm doing that planning stuff. That's what I missed. It's like, yeah, if you only remembered, you're going to die and all this is going to die with you. Like, yeah, you would have had it better. Um, Death keeps our priorities where they should be. Remembering our death helps us to live in the kingdom of God more thoroughly. Because I can tell you what my priorities are. But what it comes down to is they're not always, I don't always act out the priorities I think, right? I think these are my priorities, but in reality, I'm not acting those ones out. But when I remember death, the true priorities will come more to the surface. And so uh, in prayer, ask God to teach you to remember that my days are short and some of the things I'm fixated on are not that important. What's important is watching my thoughts and having Christ be the shepherd over them. That's what matters. So let's be watchful. It takes practice. It really takes practice. It takes some exploration. You're not going to master this, right? You're not going to like, oh, that was a great sermon. I'm fired up and I'm going to master this tomorrow. No, it's going to start with some practice. Then you're going to forget all about it. But then it's like, oh, wait. As you confess your sins before your father, you remember, oh, I haven't been very watchful. Thank you for reminding me that, Lord. Help me with that now. And then today, the next day, you you restart your efforts. It's about practicing this watchfulness. It's about remembering this flow we live in with Christ and realizing that there are forces trying to pull us out of this. It's about remembering to walk carefully that we are not in Christian Disneyland. In America, we kind of are, but like that's not the way we should live. We need to live as if there is... Caution, demons all around. Caution, sin about ready to destroy your progress in Christ. Caution, I see. Watch the steps. Watch the thoughts. Watchfulness. We live in a battle. How dare us not be watchful? So it's going to take practice. It's going to take some exploration. But one of those layers is going to take us far further. And it's going to close off one of the back doors the devil gets in. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen.